Amen. The TV series MASH. Anyone watch that? Yeah. Some of you, some of you younger people are like, MASH? MASH? Is that about like potatoes or what? What is that show about exactly? No, the, the TV series MASH ran for 11 years, I think on CBS that was maybe, from 72, 1972, great year, wonderful year, two wonderful people were born that year, yes, you and me, honey, you and me, 72 to 1983, 11 seasons, and those who have seen the show, you know that it was set where? At a mobile army surgical hospital. A MASH, right? M-A-S-H. It was set at a mobile army surgical hospital operating during the Korean War between the years 1950 and 1953. What's interesting about those dates, and this is how I'm going to turn to the relevance of what we're talking about this morning. What's interesting about those dates is that during one of the episodes in season four of the show, a soldier can be seen reading a comic book. Not totally unusual, not strange. But the comic book he was reading was an Avengers comic book. Soldiers did read comic books, of course, but the problem is that Marvel's Avengers did not appear until 1963. So, obviously, that would not have been possible. That mistake, that prop person's mistake, is what we call an anachronism. An anachronism. What does that mean? Anachronism. It means something that's misplaced in time. Now, there are lots and lots of examples of anachronisms in movies and television shows. Most of them, of course, are accidental. (laughs) I think recently Game of Thrones, somebody left a Starbucks coffee cup on one of the tables and you could see it in the background, which, of course... Not that the Game of Thrones is set in a real universe or, or, or in our real history, but kind of a medieval age, you're not going to see a Starbucks a latte sitting in the back. Another example of this is if you ever saw Kevin Costner's Robin Hood Prince of Thieves that came out in 1991, the Morgan Freeman character, his Muslim Moorish character that he played, is depicted in that film using kind of a rudimentary spyglass, like a little telescope to see some some distant enemies coming. But, of course, the, the spyglass was not invented until the 1600s in Netherland, in the Netherlands. So that's long after the medieval setting of Robin Hood. If you haven't already seen the title of my message this morning, it's probably there on the screen, and you've got it in your text. Look at that title, Jesus in the Psalms. Jesus in the Psalms. Now, for anyone who has in their mind even the most basic Bible timeline, this sounds like what? Like an anachronism. Yeah, it sounds like an anachronism. Something misplaced in time. The book of Psalms, it's a collection. This collection was put together. These Psalms were composed hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. So how in the world would or could we meet Jesus in the book of Psalms? Let's see if we can answer that question by going to one verse, Psalm 41, verse 9. Turn over there, if you haven't already, to Psalm 41, verse 9, one of the Psalms that you looked at this past week, 35, 
40. 41 and 55, I think, were the four Psalms that we studied together. This is what verse 9 says. This is the statement I ran across reading through the Bible reading plan last week from Psalm 41, a psalm attributed to David. Verse 9 says this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, let's stop there. The context of this psalm, it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a short psalm. It's not very big. You, look, you could take a look at it there. The context here makes it clear David has composed this psalm, this song, while suffering with some kind of sickness. A number of clues there about him being ill, him being sick. But instead of having friends who stop by with, uh, with a meal of some sort, maybe a kind word to visit their friend, maybe a card or a bouquet of flowers, David is visited by these fake well-wishers who are in fact secretly hoping for his demise. <laughs> not the people you want visiting you when you're not feeling good. We see this in verses 6 and 7. Look at 6 and 7. And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, which from the context we know these are, this is just like, Nice talk, right? It's just, it's, it, they're, they're hypocritical. While his heart, his words are one way, his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Wow. Can you imagine being in this situation? But in spite of this, David in this psalm makes it clear that he is confident that God will, verse 11, not allow his enemy to shout in triumph over him. He talks about in verse 1 his care for the poor, kind of a random mention of, of, uh, of one's care for those who are poor and in need. Why is that here at the beginning? Well, it's there because it will circle back at the very end in verse 12 where David will talk about God rewarding his integrity the kind of person that he is who cares for the poor, who defends the weak and the needy, that integrity of he talks about in verse 12. Look at it. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and you have set me in your presence forever. But here's what really caught my attention in regard to verse 9. You kind of get the feel of the psalm of, of how David was suffering physically health-wise, but then suffering by people trying to take advantage of his situation. People who did not like him. But as he says there, right, what did he say? Even a close friend whom I trusted, somebody I had meals with, I ate bread with, has lifted his heel against me. An awful place for him to be. But what really caught my attention in regard to verse 9 was the familiarity of the language there. Maybe as you read it too, you stopped and said, that sounds familiar that ver that verse but for me it was a familiarity that i knew it was a familiarity from the new testament this old testament verse stopped me and i thought this sounds familiar though in a new testament context well listen to the words of jesus in john 13 i'll put we'll put that text up here on the screen for you john chapter 13 this is jesus speaking at his last supper the meal hours before His crucifixion. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Talking to His disciples. I am not speaking to all of you, says Jesus. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate My bread has lifted His heel against Me. 
oh, wait a minute, we know that verse. We know that verse. That's Psalm 41.9. Now, based on the context here in John and in light of the other Gospels, it's clear that Jesus is talking here about who? About Judas, right? About Judas, the betrayal of Judas. But notice He's not only using the language of Psalm 41.9, He's actually claiming that that verse will be fulfilled in His own experience of betrayal, not the psalmist's. So in some way, more than the person who actually wrote the psalm, David, Jesus says, this concept, this idea, this betrayal, I will fulfill. It will be fulfilled in my experience. Now that's pretty stunning to think about that. Especially when you know that there's a thousand years between David and Jesus. A thousand years later, Jesus is saying this. But it makes sense of what Jesus would tell his followers after his resurrection. Look on the screen here at Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, he said to his, the apostles, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's the basic breakdown Right? There's the basic breakdown of the Old Testament. Walk into a Jewish bookstore, walk into a bookstore and ask for a Tanakh, a Tanakh, and they will give you the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Because it's the Torah, it's the Navaim, and it's the Ketuvim. T-N-K. The Tanakh. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings and the writings are often usually referred to by the first book of the writings, which is the Psalms. So even today, the Jews still use the threefold breakdown that Jesus would have known himself and that he uses right here. But he talks about everything written about him in these three parts of the Hebrew Scriptures, including the Psalms. Everything written about me in the Psalms. Now, we know that doesn't mean just the Psalms. It certainly includes the Psalms. But Psalms there represents everything that came after that, all the writings of that section. Esther, Ruth, um, um, Chronicles was there, you know, the, some of the historical books that, that were there in that section of the Hebrew Scriptures. But everything written about me in the Psalms. Now, maybe in your reading last week, as you're reading through the, the Bible reading plan, the same you made that same connection when you read a verse like Psalm 41.9. But maybe you also noticed... Other verses from the Psalms that were like this over the last few weeks. We've only been in the Psalm three weeks. I think we've looked at 12 Psalms maybe. 12 Psalms, yeah. Four a week for three weeks. We've only looked at 12 Psalms. But if you didn't notice this, let me show you this because it's, it's astonishing. It's really amazing. Think about where we've been in the Psalms. Let me share with you some other verses, the verses Jesus would have had in mind when He said, everything written about Me in the Psalms. Here's some of it. The words of Psalm 2-7, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. 
Those are connected to Christ. I'll, we'll put that up there. You can see each of these. Those are connected to Christ by Paul in Acts 13.33 and by the author of the book of Hebrews in two places, 1.5 and 5.5 of the book of Hebrews. Similarly, in the same psalm, verses 8 and 9, Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, that description of God's King ruling the nations with a rod of iron, that appears three different times in Revelation chapter 2, chapter 12, and chapter 19, all in reference to Jesus. David's description in Psalm 8.6 of how God has given man, humanity, dominion over the works of His hands, God's hands. It says, you have put all things under His feet. That psalm is connected explicitly with Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6-9. through As I mentioned last time, when David joyfully confesses in Psalm 16.10, for you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol, to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Right? That, that's, that confession is a, a declaration of the truth, a declaration of a truth that the New Testament explicitly connects to the resurrection of Jesus by Peter in Acts 2 and by Paul in Acts 13. There's more. Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Wow. That psalm. The opening verse of that psalm contains the very words that Jesus used while crying out, suffering on the cross, as recorded by Matthew 27.46 and Mark 15.34. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Then, the description in Psalm 22 Verses 7 and 8 of David's opponents mocking him in his suffering and wagging their heads at him, saying, let Yahweh deliver him if he trusts in him. That description is clearly reflected in Matthew 27 and Mark 15's description of Jesus' critics as they watched him dying there on the cross. It says the same, uses the same language. They were wagging their heads at him, saying, Oh, King of Israel. You're the King of Israel? Come down from the cross if you're the Messiah. Right? Mocking Him in that way. Now that's interesting because that verse, that connection between Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8 and the Gospels, it's not explicitly spelled out. No one's saying there this was to fulfill Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8. It's simply one of those reflections you go, hmm... That seems like too much of a coincidence <laughs> based on this psalm, right? It's also a psalm that we won't, I won't mention it here, but it's a psalm where it talks about how they've pierced his hands and feet. The psalmist says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. Now remember, David is writing this. So David is writing it based on his own experience. He's not necessarily saying, I'm, I'm having a vision or a prophecy of someone to come but he's describing his own experience and there's traces of that. You can see that. Things that don't really apply to Jesus in Psalm 22. But there's way too much that really, wow, really seems like it connects us to Jesus. So that's one of those examples where we're kind of making the connection ourselves rather than the New Testament writer saying, this is to fulfill Scripture, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. But there's more. There's more. Look at this. The Gospel of John tells us about another explicit 
fulfillment in John 19.24. Take a look on the screen where it says this about the soldiers who crucified Jesus. So they, the soldiers, said to one another, let us not tear it, the garment, the tunic that Jesus was wearing, but let us cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Really nice piece of fabric, a nice garment. You didn't want to just ruin it. Somebody wanted it. Let's cast lots to do that. John says, This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. What Scripture was that fulfilling? Psalm 22.18. There's Psalm 22 again. Psalm 22.18. Finally, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, we hear the words of Psalm 22, verse 22. There the word brothers is the key connection. Brothers is linked with Jesus. And what Jesus did, what He accomplished to make all of us children of God, that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters now, doesn't He? It's connected back to Psalm 22. So there's four, five, maybe six references in Psalm 22 in the New Testament. Some explicit, some we make, we connect the dots ourselves and we see that. Now, though it was not in our reading plan, it's worth noting that Psalm 31, as we fly by, Psalm 31 also contains words used by Jesus in Luke 23:46, you'll recognize these words where Jesus was giving up his life on the cross. David writes there in Psalm 31, "Into your hand I commit my spirit." So, Jesus not only used Psalm 22 verse 1, he also used Psalm 31 verse 5. He used that language of his forebearer David while he suffered there on the cross. David also tells us this about the righteous man in one of our readings, Psalm 34, verse 20. It says, He, God, keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. Sound familiar? Keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. So once again, the Gospel of John comes through for us. It's very clear. The Gospel of John explicitly talks about the fulfillment of that verse. Psalm 34, 20. And it talks about it in John 19.36. I think you see that. Is it on the screen there? John 30, uh, Psalm 34.20 and John 19.36. It says this when the soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus to hasten death. Right? People on the cross died usually of asphyxiation. They couldn't breathe anymore. Because they became too weak to lift themselves up and get the pressure off of their, of their, their, their lungs. So if they wanted to hasten their death, they wanted to quicken, quicken it, they would break their legs so they couldn't lift themselves up anymore and then they would just die. They just couldn't breathe anymore. They came to Jesus. He was already dead. They did not break His legs. John 19.36 says this is the fulfillment of John Psalm 34. John comments there, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of His bones will be broken. Now, another more obscure example, I, did, I never even knew this, uh, may be a statement from Psalm 35, verse 19, one of our passages. It's a statement about being hated without cause, and Jesus quotes it in John 15, 25, and He talks about it in terms of the world's hatred of Him and His followers. Hated without cause. 
Finally, one more from last week's readings. We also came across Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, where we heard these words from David. Take a look. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, the psalmist says to God, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So what is David describing here? He's describing in his song the importance of what Samuel taught. Now remember, David, Samuel was the one that anointed David king, right? He knew Samuel. And Samuel once said this to King Saul. He said, to obey is better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15.22 To obey is better than sacrifice. And that's what David is writing about here. He's writing about this very theme of his obedience. He's talking about his this obedience before God, this delight in doing God's will. And he's talking about his commitment to doing God's will as the king, as the royal one who was talked about in the scroll of Deuteronomy. Specifically chapter 17. Did you know the Old Testament law made provision for a king who would come one day? Deuteronomy 17 contains that provision for the future king. Do you remember what the king had to do? One of the most important things the king did? He would write out a copy of the entire law for himself. That was a project, right? Arts and crafts project that he did. (laughs) He wrote the whole thing out. I'm sure over many weeks, maybe months, that he would write out all of the law. This is what David's talking about here, right? As the king delighting to do God's will. Now, why is this significant? This verse you see on, that's verse you see on the screen, Psalm 46 through 8. It's significant because all three of those verses, Psalm 40, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5, 6, and 7, and they are applied to Jesus Christ. They are applied to Jesus and His perfect sacrifice that need that ended the need for any other sacrifice. So, so stop and think about what I've just told you. I just I just totally dumped on you a bunch of verses, and they're all there on the screen, and you can go back and get them if you're interested in. Them. You don't need to remember all of them, but here's my point. Think about what we did. We only looked at 12 psalms over the last three weeks. 12 psalms. And from those 12 psalms in our Bible reading plan, I just shared with you 11 verses slash passages, 10 of which are explicitly connected with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Wow. Four of which are found in the Gospel of John and they're used in passages that explicitly speak about the Scripture being fulfilled. That Scripture in the Psalms being fulfilled in Jesus. And if we were to continue in the Psalms, guess what? We would find at least ten more passages. Most of them are up front here in the first half of the Psalms. But there are at least 10 more passages if you kept going through the Psalms that you can find directly connected in the New Testament to Jesus. In fact, one of those 
passages coming up in the second half of the Psalms. One of those passages, just one verse, Psalm 110.1, is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament 17 times. 17 different times. It, it is, in fact, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Easy. No verse comes close to it. 17 times it's quoted or alluded to. Psalm 110.1. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You might even think of some New Testament verses that have that language in there, right? Especially being seated at the right hand of God. Now remember the seemingly anachronistic title of this message this morning? Jesus in the Psalms. Now, I don't think we're still asking, is Jesus really in the Psalms? I think what we're asking now is, how is Jesus in the Psalms? How would we describe Jesus being in the Psalms? Well, he's here in the same way he's there in the Ark of Noah in Genesis. He's here in the same way that he's there in the sacrificial lamb of Leviticus. He's here like he's there in the predictions of prophets like Isaiah. Though not mentioned by name in in this collection of songs, the Psalms powerfully point us to Jesus in a variety of ways. They point us to Christ. Now, let me just focus on one of those ways. When I say variety of ways, let me give you some examples real quick so you know what I'm saying. Psalm 8 Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. The psalm begins and ends with that same proclamation. When I consider your works, right? The sun, the moon, the stars, the works of your hands. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you're concerned for him. You have made him a little bit lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor and you have set him. You've given him dominion over all the works of your hands. Now, that's a beautiful psalm by David. You can imagine him sitting out on a starry night, guarding his flock, looking up, thinking, God, how are, who am I that you would be mindful of me? A tiny little speck of nothing. But he says, you have made us as your image bearers. You've given us dominion over the earth. He's in awe of God, isn't he? The author of Hebrews says, though, that Jesus, as the perfect man, fulfills God's intentions for humanity. So that's one way we see in the Psalms. Jesus fulfills the, the picture of humanity and the righteous man. Another one might be Psalm 102, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says, You, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. You spread them out like a garment. That's a Psalm pointing to Christ, but it's about His deity, that He created all things. Now, I want to just zoom in and kind of focus, on, focus in on what is the most common way that Jesus is in the Psalms. And I think you understand this because I think you heard all the references I just gave you. The most common way the Psalms prepare us for Jesus is by connecting us to the cross. What seems especially clear from our recent readings is that most of these Jesus connections that the New Testament makes to the book of Psalms revolve around the cross. Yes, some verses like Psalm 22.1 and 34.20, they point us directly to the Christ as He hung there, as He suffered on the cross. 
But still others like Psalm 16.10, right? You will not uh, uh, abandon my soul to the grave. They point us beyond his death on the cross to Christ's victory over death itself. Still right there in the same orbit. In fact, we could talk even about Psalm verses like Psalm 35.19, 41.9, our main text this morning. Those prepare us for the cross. Those speak about the rejection of Jesus that culminated in the cross. In fact, 12 of the 20 or so Jesus verses, Jesus passages in the Psalms, 12 of the, of the 20 or so passages connect us in some way to the cross of Christ. So mo- most of these places where Jesus is pointed to in the Psalms are pointed to His suffering, His rejection. So this is by far the most common way that the Psalms prepare us for Jesus. But we should ask, why this emphasis? Why is there this emphasis in the Psalms? I think it mainly has to do with David's relationship to the Psalms. David's relationship. It's not a coincidence that half of the Psalms are written by David. It's not a coincidence that most of the Psalms written by David are in the first half of the book. Not a coincidence that most of the verses we we think about and talked about are in the first half of the book, the ones that we're looking at here. David was a man both selected by God and a man who suffered for God. And that's the key right there. He was a man selected by God and he was a man who suffered for God. So it's no wonder then that the perfect descendant of an imperfect David would fulfill as Messiah, the anointed king, that's what Messiah means, the anointed king, that he would bring to fullness the very same pattern of suffering and deliverance and glory described about David's life in so many of his psalms. Suffering, deliverance, glory... Those are good words for David's life, aren't they? Suffering, deliverance, glory. But David was the imperfect king. What about when his perfect descendant would come? He would fill those categories to overflowing. Suffering, deliverance, glory. So this is, what does all this mean for you though? (laughs) Why does any of this matter beyond the category of interesting Bible facts? Right. Oh, that's really interesting, Pastor. I wrote some good verses down in my notebook here. Really interesting. Glad to know it. Okay, let's talk about why this matters. I think that if someone really understood this and really embraced what we're talking about this morning, I think that they would, number one, take a look, they would be in awe of God's fulfillment. Be in awe of God's fulfillment. To have so many ideas and phrases and events line up between David and a descendant who lived a thousand years after his time is absolutely astonishing. And what's interesting is that since these were not explicit prophecies about the coming Messiah, it's much harder for a critic to say, oh, Jesus or Jesus and his people, they simply orchestrated these things to line up with the prophecies of the Old Testament. As if somehow that were easy to do. That's not this though, right? 
Nobody's looking at the psalm saying, oh, these are talking about the coming Messiah, so we should just line them all up and figure out a way for Jesus to fulfill them. No, no one was doing that. But this pattern of the suffering and the deliverance and the glory of the Davidic king is very subtle. But when you see it, it's amazing. Right? When it starts lighting up, you begin to see and say, wow, what a powerful reminder for us that our faithful God, our sovereign God, had and has a plan that He has brought and will bring to pass perfectly. Does that encourage you? It really should. He's already shown you that He can bring it to pass, right? doesn't matter if a thousand years goes by. His plan is on track. He knows what will come to pass. He has it laid out. We see that fulfillment here, don't we? In the Psalms, this beautiful book, this beautiful fulfillment. Number two, how does it matter to us? It encourages us to be on the lookout for Jesus. Be on the lookout for Jesus. I know, you know, the Psalms is one of the most popular books of the Bible. I don't know how many times I've talked to somebody, wanted to check on them because they were struggling reading the scriptures. How you doing? Are you in the word? Are you reading this? Are you in God's word? Yeah, I'm in the Psalms. And, and a lot of times they're always in the Psalms. If I'm talking to somebody, yep, going back to the Psalms because it's a book that really connects with such a wide range of people in different places, at different places in their journey, different places in their life, the Psalms speak to a broad audience. They speak to, it, they speak to our heart, don't they? Well, we can be on the lookout for Jesus in this way. As you continue to read through the Psalms, brothers and sisters, in the coming weeks, we've got a couple more weeks, I think, in the Psalms, and any time in the future, as you do that, look for any and every reminder of Jesus because He's there. He's there in the Psalms. A verse or phrase may jump out at you. It may sound familiar to you. Use your cross-reference. Maybe if you've got a center column in your Bible, a little thing at the bottom, use it and say, this sounds familiar. Is this in the New Testament somewhere? And you may find a direct connection to the New Testament where it tells you, hey, this is pointing us to Jesus. But at other times, it may simply be that a psalm about God's compassion and its forgiveness reminds you of what Christ died to make possible for you. That through Him, you experience the compassion and forgiveness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David. It may be uh, at another time that a passage about the psalmist's own righteousness leads your heart back to the righteousness of Jesus that now covers us by God's grace. Maybe a psalm about worship inspires you to worship Jesus or a verse about God's judgment or God's mighty deeds and the psalms remind you of the cross and the empty tomb, the cross where Jesus bore God's judgment for us. The judgment we deserve. Whatever it is in the Psalms that sparks your heart, ask God to set your soul ablaze with a clear view of your Savior and Lord in this amazing book. What an important reminder this is that there is truly and everything written about Jesus in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms and that that everything must be fulfilled, as Jesus said. He's there. He's there in all of it. Finally, number three, 
Be grateful He suffered for you. Be grateful He suffered for you. What is our main text in Psalm 41.9, that simple statement? What does it reveal to us this morning? It's revealed more to us than just something about David's life, hasn't it? It's revealed to us that Jesus was betrayed by a friend. He suffered that betrayal in order that we might be God's friends. He endured that for you. He suffered in that way for you. We, we see in these Psalms that Jesus was mocked so that God would delight in us. He endured that mockery and humiliation that we might know honor. He was rejected that we might be embraced. He was hated that we might experience eternal love. He was abused that we might know incomparable comforts forever. Those are some of the difficult realities that the Psalms have pointed us to about the life of Christ this morning. And since all of these things were foretold, foretold, none of it was lost on Jesus. He, in fact, when it happened, He would say He knew that time was coming, that this was going to be fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ lived every day of His life knowing what He would endure for you. Every day knowing that He would suffer betrayal for because of you. Mockery, humiliation, abuse, hatred. He knew all of it was coming. It did not catch Him off guard. It did not catch Him by surprise. He walked throughout His three and a half years of His ministry, even probably before that, while He worked in the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. He knew what was coming. And all of it would happen because He came for us, for our sin. Can you imagine knowing that all of this would happen in advance? All the things that David talked about with his own suffering, the things that we now know were ultimately fulfilled in his descendant, Jesus Can you imagine if David knew in advance all of the things? I think he'd go crazy probably. He'd probably maybe throw himself off a cliff or something and say, I can't even stand to know all of this that's going to happen to me. Jesus knew it all. But he also knew that all of it was in the Scriptures because it was his Father's plan. He was fulfilling his Father's plan. And if the New Testament, if Jesus Himself is clearly connecting these Psalms about this kind of suffering with the sufferings of Christ, then as you read these ancient songs, so many of them of lament, so many of them of complaint, so many of them about suffering, crying out to God in light of injustice, in light of persecution, you, I think, can use all of these Psalms of suffering to remember what Jesus did for you. Even if they're not explicitly mentioned in the New Testament, I think the picture is clear that David's suffering was like a precursor. It was a picture of the Davidic king who would suffer unthinkable suffering in the future. 
Though the scriptures speak about many righteous men and women who suffered in one or another way, no one has or ever will suffer like Jesus. Do you recognize that? No human being will ever suffer as Jesus has suffered. And He did that for us. We read in 1 Peter 3.18, take a look. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's Him, for the unrighteous, that's me, that's you. Why? That He might bring us to God. Yeah. 1 Peter 3.18, Somehow it is easy, I don't know why, Somehow it is easy for us to forget both the reality of our immense need as sinners and the reality of His astonishing love for us. But God, through the Psalms, (laughs) brings us back to it, doesn't He? There's Jesus Christ right there in the Psalms. Why don't we do this? Let's take a moment to ask God with humility, with gratitude in our hearts, to regularly remind us of what the Psalms foretold. To remind us through His Word, to remind us through His Spirit, to remind us through one another that Christ suffered for sinners like us. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Let's give thanks to God.